Would you open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20? Clifford Whitehead had been battling cancer for 11 years. The time of his death was drawing close, and ultimately he lost the battle with that cancer. But Clifford was a very godly man, an older gentleman who had lived many years and had a lot of experiences not only with life in general, but had a lot of experience with the Lord as well. And one of the most meaningful and most tender moments of my life came two days before he died. We sat down together. I can't even tell you how long it was. But we just sat together and we talked. And I, as a young man at the time, was able to glean from this man who had experienced a close walk with the Lord for many, many years, some of the most touching and meaningful expressions of love for the Savior, of love for people, and of things that really matter and things that really count in life. After that discussion, that was the last time that I saw Clifford alive. He died two days later and went into the presence of the Lord. What struck me at that moment was that when a person is approaching the end of their lives, end of their life, that is when they really begin to express the things that are most heavily upon their heart and the things that are most meaningful. It's what Clifford did. And as I expressed last week, I believe that's what Paul is doing here. If you remember, when we began looking at this 20th chapter, there is a story that's unfolding where the Apostle Paul has called the elders from the church that was in Ephesus to meet him outside the city because he didn't have the time to go into the city and spend time working with the church at large. So he called the elders together and he told them, this is the last time I'm going to see you. Though, as we know, he didn't die for several years. From their point of view, this was the last conversation they were going to have together. And they obviously were very saddened by that. What's interesting is the importance of the things that Paul focused upon in these verses. We began last week looking down there at verse 22, and we saw how Paul is addressing those who are going to be shepherds. And as we said again last week, and I I want to be sure we have the right setting of this, he is talking to men who are the leaders of the church, those who are considered to be spiritually mature leaders in the church, some of whom would be responsible for the preaching and the teaching, others who would be responsible for the oversight and the care of the congregation. And he has brought them all together. Some of these, if not all of them, were converts under his ministry. So he really had a heart for these people because he would have looked at them as his children in the Lord. But he knew that things were going to change, time was going to continue, there was going to be an exit of his influence upon the church, and now he wants to be sure that these men are prepared to do what the Lord has called them to do. What we determined last week is this, that though the direct context of what we're reading about here involves the church, it really has application 
an important application to anybody that has oversight, that has the care, the shepherding of others. It might be the shepherding of others within a family situation. It might be the shepherding of others in an occupational area. You may be responsible for other people. It could be in a classroom setting where you are responsible for the lives of these young people. And and so when we look at this, the principles fall down to us with a very, very broad swath. It, it takes a, a, a large segment, if not every one of us, as we go through this. So you'll understand if I focus on this from the point of view of the direct context, where Paul is speaking to elders of the church. But in your mind, please make the transition to the way your life is to be affected by these principles of being a good shepherd, a an under-shepherd under the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is the Good Shepherd. And so when Paul addresses these people, he's telling them, here's what I'm expecting from you, and here's what I want you to know as the requirements for tending the flock of the Lord. You're to have a clear purpose. And that's where we focused our attention last week. He understood a couple different elements about that purpose in verses 22 down through verse 24, that it's a divinely established purpose. And if we were to summarize, though that is, though this specific is not found in this passage, it is implied by the way Paul's life is developed. We have a divine purpose, which is to manifest the fruit of the Spirit through our lives. Every aspect of that quality of life that the Spirit of God produces, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the gentleness, the long-suffering, all of these qualities that the Spirit of God produces within our lives is supposed to be being refined as we live our lives. For the ultimate purpose, which is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the goal. That's where we're all heading if we know Christ is our Savior and if we have committed ourselves to following His pathway. But we all have individual purposes as well. God called Paul to be a planter of churches. God has called me to be an under-shepherd over a flock. God has called many of you to be teachers. God has called many of you to be homemakers. God has called many of you to be businessmen, businesswomen. And there's a whole variety of individualized callings that we have received. But the ultimate purpose remains the same. The qualities of Christ's life as they are produced by the Holy Spirit coming out through the way we live with the ultimate goal that one day we will be like Christ. We won't be God, but we will manifest all of the qualities of the divine mingled with the humanity of Christ, where He demonstrated perfectly every one of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what Paul had these men understand. And even if it took you through the deep waters, that's okay. Notice how he says uh, in verse 23, 
Except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And as we said several weeks ago, the joy that Paul is speaking of here is this. He finishes his course. He doesn't try to escape the difficulties that this life brings. He finishes what God has called him to do so that at the very end of his life, as he is about to be put to death in Rome, he is able to say, I have finished the race. It's done. And now he goes home in triumph. Wouldn't that be great if we all did that? We all get to the end of our lives and we say, it's done. I did everything that God called me to do. As an individual and as one to be conformed to the very image of Christ, it's done. That's our purpose. I want you to notice too, In the verses that follow here, he begins to tell us that those who are good shepherds, those that are following all the requirements of being the right shepherd, are willing to proclaim the whole will of God. As you look down there in verse 25, you begin to read this. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. That brings terrible sadness to them. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, if I may stop at that point, what I have heard in years gone by, and as a pastor, you you, you hear, hear people express a lot of things about their views of what their primary and, and ultimate responsibilities are and what their goals are and so forth. And I have heard this, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But I've heard people say, you know, I gave the gospel to that person, and their blood is no longer on my hands. Now they are responsible for themselves. Have any of you ever heard anybody say something like that? That's kind of a common statement among people who are believers. And they'll say, okay, I did my part. And maybe they did it with humility. And maybe they did it with a real sense of desire to see people to come to Christ. And then they feel like they've done their job. That that's what we are called to do. To present the gospel... And now it's up to people whether or not they will respond and receive Christ as Savior. And the blood is off our hands. That is not what the Bible teaches. Listen to what goes on in the very next verse. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Part of our deception today is the belief that once you've given the gospel, that's what it's all about. And that is not true. It is the whole counsel of the Word of God. It includes presenting the gospel to people. It's the message of hope. It's the message of forgiveness. It's a message that says a holy God who has been whose holiness has been violated by our sin, 
still loves us enough to provide the satisfaction for our sin by having His Son, who is the perfect God, come in the flesh for whom there is no sin for which He should die, so He can take upon Himself our sin, and as the infinite God, He can take care of the penalty and the punishment of the sin of everyone, and He took our sin, nailed it to the cross, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, so that as a gracious act of God who freely gives life, we can reach out and accept that gift and say, Lord, I thank You for what Jesus Christ did for me at the cross of Calvary and how He rose from the dead and I trust in Him. I'm not trusting in my church, but I love my church. I'm not trusting in baptism, But baptism is an essential part of obedience to the Lord, not a necessity for salvation. I don't trust in any good work that I can perform, but I trust solely on the person of Jesus Christ. And as a result of the transforming power that comes through the the regeneration of the Holy Spirit of God, giving us new life, causing us to be born again we now pass from death into life. We are given a new life in Christ and now we live good lives for the glory of God. And we do the good works because of what He has already done for us. You can't add to what Jesus did. You can only accept what He did. You know, I gave, handed a gift to Isaac just a few minutes ago. What if he had just stood there? Oh, that's nice. That's, that's really nice. Thank you. That's what a lot of people are doing today. Oh, Jesus died on the cross? That's nice. Boy, that, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that He died on the cross. They never reach out in faith and accept Him and say, I trust Him as my Savior from sin and its penalty and receive that gift. That's where it begins. That's only the beginning. Because from that point on, it is the Lord's intent that we understand who God is and that we understand what He desires from us. You will not come to the conclusion on your own of what you ought to do. You will only find it as you turn in the Scriptures and you use God's Word to guide your path, to be a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. It is what God's Word has to say. And Paul is telling us something that's extremely important. It isn't enough to just give the Gospel. You must include the whole counsel of the will of God. Otherwise, you are still responsible for falling short of that purpose to which the Lord has called you. If I don't teach you doctrine, I have fallen short of that which God has called me to do. If you don't teach your children truths from the Word of God, you are falling short. If you in the classroom do not communicate the the realities of God Himself, who He is and what He does and what He anticipates and what He expects, you are falling short. And you can apply that to any realm of life. 
it requires some things from us. It requires what we would call an experiential knowledge. It's one thing to know about someone else. It's another thing to know them. Clifford Whitehead knew Christ. Not just as his Savior, but as his Lord. And he walked with Christ, made mistakes, committed acts of sin, failed, accepted the forgiveness that comes along with that confession of sin as a child accepts the forgiveness of his father when he has failed his father and and acknowledges that what he did was wrong and he experienced not only the judicial forgiveness that comes through accepting Christ but the familial forgiveness that comes from acknowledging our misbehavior as a son. And he went through life experiencing Christ. Trusting Him when the waters were really deep. Trusting Him and learning about the depths of His grace as He's dying. And He comes to church every week. And sits down even though He's in pain. And sings out praise to the Lord. By the way, I, where's Isaac? See, oh, he's, he's back up in his regular spot. Have you noticed, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but he picked over the past few weeks all of my favorite songs and worked them in. Did, did, did you notice that? That's a good move. That, that's the sort of thing gets you a good recommendation if you ever need one sometime. I was telling you about Clifford, who would sing who would praise the Lord because he had experiential knowledge of Christ. But he was also a man who understood that he had the responsibility to communicate Christ, sometimes formally and sometimes merely through the quality of his life. You could not be around this man without seeing the beauty of Christ in him. You could not be around him without seeing the grace of God manifesting itself through his life. And I've seen many others that are like that as well. The Lord says, I want you as a shepherd to give the whole counsel of God. It's part of your responsibility as a good shepherd. Then he goes on as he continues down here in uh, verse 28 and he he tells us that we're supposed to establish a system of perpetuation. In other words, we're going to pass from the scene. So we've got to get another group ready to carry the message of the gospel and the totality of the word of God to the next generation. It's part of why it's so important for us to to reach out to the younger generation and say to them, listen, you may do things a little differently than we do. We're going to be understanding of that. But what we want you to know is this. There are eternal truths that never change with the passing of one generation to the next. There are eternal truths that if you are going to please your Creator, you need to live by these in order to do that. And they never change. There is absolute truth. It is not all relative. And so we recognize that we need to perpetuate this. And and 
Paul goes on to tell us how that's done. I want you to look at some important words here in verse 28. It says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you. Now, you see the next word. If you're you're following along in the New King James translation, it says overseers. Do you see that word? It's the same word that's translated or, or can be translated bishops. You have a responsibility as a bishop to oversee. You, do you remember who he called together as, the group that he called together, he called the elders? That was their spiritual qualification. These were people who were mature spiritually, who had experience with the Lord. Now he says, I want you to oversee, I want you to bishop over this flock that you have been given. And then he throws in a third one. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now he throws in that word shepherd is the word for pastor. So if you are an elder, you oversee the flock and you shepherd them. You pastor them. You protect them. You feed them. You lead them. You encourage them. You do all the things that a good shepherd is supposed to do. Because you're an overseer and you are spiritually mature as an elder. So he throws them all into one bag. And everybody that has a realm of shepherding falls into this type of a category. Notice. He says in, well, let let me go back. Let me start here at verse 28 before I go on to verse 29. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. So what's he telling us now about perpetuating the next generation? He's saying basically this, you be what you should be. I think one of the biggest arguments that kids have, and they are absolutely right, is that they look at many who claim the name of Christ and they say they're a bunch of hypocrites. Um, Sadly... Many kids say that about their parents because they know how mom and dad live at home. And then they see how they act when they're in church. And they say, why do I want to live that kind of a life? My parents are hypocrites. They, they yell at each other. They swear at each other. They watch programs on TV that they ought not watch. They talk about things that they ought not talk about. They get involved in activities that they ought not be involved in. And then they come to church and they sing out at the tops of their voices. And when they pray, they, you, you hear them going, Oh, yes, Lord. Yes, yes. Mm. There's always that little smack of the lips. Yes. You all know what I'm talking about. You hear people around you doing that. That can be a very genuine thing. But it can also be the sign of hypocrisy. If you're going to be the shepherd that God wants you to be, you have to look to yourself first. What is he saying? Take care of yourself first. I'm number one. No. He's saying you be sure that your life lines up in practice with the very things that you say you embrace. It would be that old adage, what I am in the dark, that's what I am in the light. Or vice versa. What I am in the light is what I am in the dark. When nobody sees me, I am still the same person in that darkness as I am when everybody's eyes are upon me. 
we ought to be able to say, you know what? What you see is what you get. This is it. What I am here is what I am anywhere. I want to praise the Lord here, then I'm going to praise Him wherever I go. I'm going to live honestly here, and I'm going to live honestly wherever I go. Take heed to yourselves. That's where it begins. And that takes discipline. Spiritual discipline. It means you spend time in God's Word. Not because it's going to make your day go well, but because you learn about Him through His Word. You you discipline yourself relationally. You have relationships that are appropriate and they're right. You don't cross lines of impropriety, but you stay within the realm of that which is proper as a husband, as a wife, as a child. You have physical disciplines to where you bring under control those desires of the body. In every realm of our lives, we bring ourselves back under the discipline that the Lord desires from us. And it's not easy. It means we have to say no to ourselves sometimes. And there are times when we don't want to say that. So take heed to yourselves. And then he goes on and says this. And to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now he tells us you keep watch over the flock too. Do you notice how he says all the flock? I want to tell you something that is a temptation for pastors. Um, All the flock is inclusive, isn't it? As a pastor, and I had to face this early on, and I, and I saw this developing, and I, I, I despised it in myself. You are going to have people of influence in your church. People perhaps of wealth. People perhaps of uh, notoriety. And you are going to have the poor And you're going to have people that just kind of slip in quietly. Nobody knows them. They slip out and they move back into a world where they live in anonymity. They have no influence. And then you have everybody in between. And you know what what is a temptation for pastors? To try to buddy up to the big shots. I don't ever want to know what anybody gives in their offerings. Don't even try to hand me your offering check if if you do that. Just drop it in the little box in the back. I, I have taken them on occasion, but I take them face down and I slip them in. I do not want to know anything so that none of my responsibility as a shepherd is influenced by who and what you are. When it says shepherd the whole flock, it means you don't have favorites. 
It means you minister to everyone equally. Sometimes pastors get sucked in to relationships where they're just so close, they're good buddies with a couple other guys, and then when decisions are made, it's not the shepherd being what he ought to be, it's the influence of the people around him that he feels so close to that he can't ever say to them, hey, you're wrong, we're not doing it that way. Do you guys understand what I'm saying here? Can, can you can you move it into your realm? Can, can you understand? You don't treat your children with favoritism. You might treat them differently. Our daughter, who's back with her husband, who took her away for two years and finally came to us. No, I'm just kidding. Didn't have to spank her a lot. Early on, very strong-willed, half hour to get her to say please. And after the please came out, that seemed to break the hard-headedness. And I've never been the same since. (laughs) She said please as a little kid, the little spoon. Oh, I know this isn't politically correct. So what? And she'd get it. And then there was our son. (laughs) Whack! Whack! Totally different. But we love them both. We love them both. Take heed to all the flock. Luke, with the kids, you love them all. I know you do. Steve, with this church family, we love them all. And your realm. But we don't love the same way everybody because you'll notice it says the flock that the Holy Spirit has given you. Not everybody is in your flock or our flock. I don't raise other people's children. I may not like what I see, but it's their responsibility to raise their children. I don't go to some other church and try to foist my shepherding on them, especially if I'm invited as a guest. It's the flock that the Spirit of God has given me. And I can bring this into your realm. I've had to deal with men who have developed emotional relationships with women other than their wives. That is not your flock. Your flock is the person you married. That's your flock. And wives have developed emotional relationships with men where they will confide in other men rather than with their own husbands. That is sin and that is wrong. You stick with the flock that God has given you. And there are other principles that you can draw out of this. You know that these are divinely given because they're given by the Holy Spirit. He has prepared you to be the shepherd in your realm. He has prepared your sheep to be the sheep that they should be to help you be the person that that God intends for you to be. The Lord tells you to watch over that flock. That means that you, you protect them. Because look at what he goes on to say here in verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Do you know how savage wolves come in among you? They're not going to get their way in here. 
We really try to evaluate anybody that we have speak. And by the way, if you ever have somebody speak at any function of the church, you need to run that by the pastors, by the shepherds. You don't just bring a person in. You run it by the shepherds first. Why? Because we want to protect the flock from savage wolves who may come in from the outside and preach a gospel different than the saving grace that we have in in the Lord and may teach the Word in a different way than we understand the Scriptures to teach the truth about God. Okay? My responsibility is to be sure that whoever comes, whether it's on the women's retreat, whether it's on the men's retreat, whether it's in a Bible study, whether it's in any formal function, by the way, even in a marriage ceremony, unless I know who's leading that ceremony, they don't lead one. Because I don't want somebody up here giving some vows that go something like this. I promise to stay with you as long as we both shall love. That's, that's what they're saying. As long as we both shall love. No. Oh. I want you to look at one other passage. No, we've got to go on into verse 30. And also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. In other words, what he is saying is this. There are going to be renegades from within the church that are going to try to teach things other than what the church is teaching from the Word of God, they're going to try to lead the church in a different way, and you've got to protect the church from them too. Have you seen people that have been right within a church and ultimately are in the process of destroying it because they want everything their way? Have you ever seen anybody like that? And by the way, even the pastor doesn't get it his way. That's why we have a board of elders, and the pastor's voice is one of ten. So that there's not a day that's where the pastor stands up and he says, this is what we're going to do, I don't care what comes our way. No. The board says, here's the direction we believe the Lord wants us to go. I, I just throw that in so you know what's going on behind the scenes. Finally. Oh, boy, there's more there, though. <sighs> Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul just had a heart for these people and he warned them about these dangers that were coming. But then he says this in verse 32, and this brings us to our conclusion. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen to this. Paul is painting a picture that says this. Men, I've called you all together to say these things to you. These are the important things. And now I'm leaving. I have to turn you over to the grace of God. And that's a great thing to be able to do. 
God loves our flocks more than we do. God can take care of our flocks better than we can. And when that love of the Lord is manifested through our lives, it is only a reflection of his love. And his word, if it is properly implanted in the lives of your flock, will keep them on the right track. Teach your kids well. Lead your employees well. Show your class well. That's what good shepherds do. And then they have to say, farewell. I turn you over to his grace. And now I leave. Mom and dad, you have to do that with your kids too. You have to say, I turn, aren't you glad, aren't you guys glad I'm telling your parents this? They have to let you leave. Not prematurely, but at the right time. And then they say, now, we've done everything with you we know to do. Now, you've got to take life and live it before the Lord. You better be prepared to take kids who are just like you. Rebellious, disobedient, sneaking liars. And teach them the way of truth. You guys know. Got to let them go. I got to let you go. And I entrust you to his grace. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege it is to be given responsibility for the work that you have called us to perform. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the sheep who make it quite easy to fulfill the responsibilities of an elder, of an overseer, of a pastor. I pray that that would be the experience of each of those who have realms of responsibility as shepherds over others. And Father, I pray that through us, there would be the continuation of a commitment to truth that will impact another generation for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.